You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else, and today we're switching to Sandwich Cast. Last time on Star Trek The Next Generation. So this is not sitting well with you, Ashlyn. Lines count, fences. Right, but see, that's the thing, This is another hot dog sandwich. (laughs) (laughs) So this is where it starts getting into where do we define something actually being a tool use and where are they just interacting with their environment in a way that makes sense. The hot dog is a tool. And it's definitely a sandwich. Yes, of course. <laughs> of course it's a sandwich. Yeah, so is a pierogi. No! What? A pierogi is... No, a pierogi is... A dumpling. Yes, a pierogi is definitely a dumpling. It's a subtype of sandwich. No! Jim, stop. We've found our next topic, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> It'll just be a giant quiz. For an hour. Everyone will be wrong. <laughs> exactly. Oh, also a sandwich? God. Matryoshka dolls. Thank <laughs> God. That's not even the food. <laughs> like... Cold cereal is clearly a soup. I agree with that one. Something, something but I hate myself. <laughs> a bowl of cereal that itself is not a soup. If you really want to look at that milk, that's more of an infusion. But at that point, it's like taking the tea. Minestrone is this And now the conclusion. Life, the universe, and everything else explores the intersection of science and society. If you have questions or comments about the show, or you'd like to suggest a topic, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook, or send us an email at l-u-e-e-podcast at winnipegskeptics.com. Show notes and references can be found at l-u-e-e-podcast.com. I'm Laura Creek Newman, and I'll be your host today, so a little bit out of the ordinary for the new year. But with me, as always, are Ashlyn Noble. Hello. Lauren Bailey. Hi. And Jem Newman. Hello. Some of you listening might recall our previous discussion of sandwiches on episode 143, and, and that's where the idea for Sandwich Cast was sparked. You know, it was such an enjoyable and totally unrelated tangent. <laughs> Very com- insightful and well-researched. It was delightful, and we just haven't been able to let it go, so we thought, you know what, rather than fight it, let's just go with it and see what we can do. Succumb to the Sandwich Cast. <laughs> <laughs> and it's fun to argue with each other instead of always agreeing. Exactly. It is also fun to argue with your friends about things that don't matter at all. 100%. (laughs) So today we're going to be talking about all things sandwich related. If you live in North America, Europe, or really anywhere that American or European culture has had a significant influence, it's likely that you're familiar with sandwiches. The sandwich has had a meteoric rise in popularity over the last century and is now available in innumerable variations and configurations. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and snacks. There is a sandwich that is perfect to suit any eating occasion. (laughs) So to start things off, I'm going to pass it over to Jem to uh, talk a little bit about the history of the sandwich. Sandwiches are beautiful, sandwiches are fine. I like sandwiches, I eat them all the time. I eat them for my supper and I eat them for my lunch. If I had a hundred sandwiches, I'd eat them all at once. I would like to talk about the origins of the sandwich, or the putative origins thereof, which means that we need to discuss Montague, 4th Earl of Sandwich. Yay! First, even more background. (laughs) Yay! (laughs) The word sandwich 
comes from Old English and translates roughly as market town built on sand. <laughs> That's <Wow>. unstable. <laughs> this also means, incidentally, that whenever you add the suffix witch to something, you're not saying it's a sandwich version of that. You are saying it is a market town version of that. <laughs> so bear that in mind. So uh, uh, sandwich is an historic town in the county of Kent in southeast England. In 1660, Admiral Sir Edward Montague, a famed commander in the British Navy, was granted a peerage of England by Charles II, becoming Baron Montague of St. Neots, Viscount Hitchingbrook, and the first Earl of Sandwich. The earldom survives to this day, with John Edward Hollister Montague, 11th Earl of Sandwich, sitting in the British House of Lords uh, since the 90s. But neither the Admiral nor John Edward Hollister have much bearing on today's segment. We will instead be discussing John Edward Hollister's presumed namesake, John Montague, the 4th Earl of Sandwich. John Montague succeeded his grandfather as 4th Earl of Sandwich in 1729 at the age of 10. Though he apparently lacked any particular oratorical skill, in the House of Lords he reportedly developed a reputation for presenting his arguments with clarity. That's very good for a 10-year-old. <laughs> How do you do, fellow kids? I'm skipping a bit here. <laughs> Sandwich uh, held several important posts throughout his lifetime, including Postmaster General, Secretary of State for the Northern Department, and three separate spells as First Lord of the Admiralty. Um, all of these presumably post-adolescents. <laughs> uh, but despite this, uh, Montague was apparently best known for incompetence and corruption. Yay! In Warfare on the Mediterranean in the Age of Sail, author David Blackmore cites Sandwich as the origin of the saying, Seldom has any man held so many offices and accomplished so little. Ouch. <laughs> but that's hardly fair, is it? I, the man did, after all, come up with the idea of throwing a slice of meat between two pieces of bread. How bad could he be? So the sandwich, I'm speaking here of the meal now, not the man, uh, was invented uh, circa 1762. Uh, Sandwich, the man, was reportedly such an inveterate gambler, uh, or so the story goes, that he refused to leave the gaming table for meals. During one particularly long stint, he had his cook prepare something that he could eat with a single hand while he played, and thus was the sandwich born. This story was first reported by French travel writer Pierre-Jean Grosly in his 1770 book Londres, it was translated into English in 1772 as A Tour to London, or New Observations on England and Its Inhabitants. <laughs> uh, apparently it was quite uh, popular in England in its English translation, because the English love to find themselves quaint. Quote, A minister of state passed four and twenty hours at a public gaming table, so absorbed in play that, during the whole time, he had no subsistence but a piece of beef between two slices of toasted bread which he ate without ever quitting the game. This new dish grew highly in vogue during my residence in London. It was called by the name of the minister who invented it. No sauce or anything, just meat and bread. Meat and toast. So, sandwich certainly popularized the sandwich, uh, the man and meal, respectively. But it is unlikely that his cook invented it, and still less likely that uh, the man himself did. 
He certainly, as was reported contemporaneously, was responsible for popularizing the dish uh, in England. And as I believe has come up on the podcast before, because why wouldn't it? English sandwiches are known to be particularly bad. Um, <laughs> except for the ones that are now available at Marks and Sparks. They've gone this whole big to-go thing, and sandwiches are their biggest seller in the store now. Wow. Doesn't it's, necessarily mean they're good. Like, if English people are used to bad sandwiches, they might still be bad. It's a far cry from, like, every time I ever heard Douglas Adams describe his stay in like a a train station it was always like two slices of white bread and a single like slice of cheese in between but while the sandwich as popularized if not invented by uh the earl uh was new in some sense in england uh, it certainly had antecedents so in medieval europe it was actually common to use old crusts of bread typically the bottom or top of a round loaf as a, a plate called a trencher this comes from uh, the French tranché. And uh, at the end of the meal, the trencher itself could be eaten, uh, used as a sop after dousing in gravy, for example. But more commonly, it was given to the servants or the poor as alms. Yum. <laughs> How <laughs> or generous. Or the dogs. Or the dogs, yeah. Um, Montague was also known to have traveled to the Mediterranean uh, many times, where he probably encountered Metsy platters, uh, which were common. At the risk of being overly reductive, uh, for any listeners who are not familiar, uh, a metzi is uh, basically an appetizer platter. (laughs) It's so good. It's a selection of breads, dips, cheeses, meats, pickles, and the like that are served either between the courses of a multi-course meal or as snacks in social situations. For example, well, gaming. (laughs) (laughs) A uh, person with a flatbread topped with meat and cheese in one hand isn't exactly unusual in these circumstances, so it seems likely that Metsy Platter's influenced the development of the sandwich at the very least. Uh, Sandwiches, also, were not the only easily consumable food invented to aid in gambling. Any guesses, Ashlam, Lauren, what other food I'm thinking of? Laura knows the answers to this. (laughs) Um, She actually brought it up to me. So pizza is the first thing that came to mind, but I actually did the history of pizza, and gambling did not come up. (laughs) So... I don't know. We we eat popcorn with chopsticks. I feel like pizza too would be too greasy. Well, and and thinking of how it was traditionally eaten, like you eat it with a fork and knife. It's not. Oh yeah. Like when when you think of Italian pizza, you you yeah you can't. It's not slices that mm. are easily contained. So chopsticks bagels. are a bagels. Uh, bagels. <laughs> chopsticks are a, a a clue actually. Um, According to Hiro Sone, uh, Michelin star chef at California's Terra Restaurant, and uh, other um, sources that I was able to find, sushi rolls had a similar origin. Mm. The classic uh, tekamaki is a sushi roll filled with uh, rice and raw tuna. And I'll quote Hiro himself here. In Japanese, teka means place of gambling. (laughs) The seaweed wrap was introduced so gamblers could eat without getting rice on their cards or tiles. And in this case, it seems that the goal was not necessarily to keep things tidy, but also to prevent cheating by uh, surreptitiously marking cards or Mm. tiles with pieces of rice. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. I hadn't even thought of that. (laughs) So in a sense, sushi is also a sandwich. (laughs) But we'll get into that later. (laughs) I've always liked using the sandwich as something in our medieval group. So people will say, well, they had all this stuff to make thing. So of course I can use thing because it must be historical. But we 
have no evidence for a sandwich before the 1700s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's one of the things that you can tell people who are new to a concept like this saying like, yeah, they had bread and they had things they could put in bread, but we have no evidence of anybody using two pieces of bread with stuff in between it. Therefore, it is not a historical thing that we can use at our feasts. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know darn well. Minds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know darn well that people did it, but we have no proof. We don't know that. Or it could be that people just didn't do it for whatever reason, forever was like social or cultural norms that we just... We've had all of the ingredients for the double down for, for <laughs> hundreds of years, and still no one attempted that monstrosity. <laughs> well, thanks, Jem, for that maybe true-ish history of the sandwich. It's, it's, it's the best I could do. <laughs> maybe true-ish. And I think that, especially when it comes to food... That's probably the best anyone can really hope for, because as I've heard on a lot of other historical type podcasts, people just didn't write down stuff that they did every day. Like us, we don't. Well, I mean, in the advent of social media, we do write down things that we do every day. But still, we don't say things like I drank water today. Yeah, and it's like just kind of accept. So sometimes you have to infer these things, like like the weird inference of the what is it like half hour period that everybody used to wake up in the middle of the night and mm-hmm. you know have sex or have a snack or whatever. Oh yeah, I forgot yeah. about that. Wasn't it sometimes a couple hours or something? Yeah, I've heard that yeah. it would be like two hours. Yeah. yeah, I thought it was long enough to like go and do some writing and go or something. People like, or whatever. Yeah, but it was just like a normal thing that would happen, and so it was not remarked upon. <laughs> multi-phase sleep. Yeah, multi-phasic. Like that. That's weird. So what we do know, you know, the sandwich is named after the fourth Earl of Sandwich. We do know that people at the time saw him as the inventor of this thing, whether he or his cook invented it. You know, invention as far as stacking three things on top of each other is, you know, <laughs> like that's, that's not an exact science. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. Maybe somebody accidentally dropped their Metsy platter before and made a sandwich. <laughs> A lot of this isn't written down as well because cooking and other women's issues were basically ignored for the historical record for centuries. Absolutely. And cooking was also done by people who couldn't always write, Mm -hmm. I'm guessing, too, because they were, yes, the people who had the schooling and education and the time to write things down generally didn't cook for themselves. Well, I'm roaming and a-traveling and a-wandering alone And if you care to listen, I will sing a happy song I will not ask a favor and I will not ask a fee But if you have yourself a sandwich, won't you give a bite to me? Let's talk about what goes in a sandwich. Ashlyn, are cured meats going to kill us? Yes. Well, not us. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you have eaten some in your lifetime, right? Yeah, that's fair. We, uh, we definitely Probably have. more than my fair share, honestly. It'll take a while. <laughs> So sandwiches often contain meat, and that meat is often processed for preservation in some way, whether it's smoked, salted, dried, etc. Cooked. I mean, technically. (laughs) As the only omnivore on the LUEE team, I decided to take on the subject of the link between sandwich meat and cancer. Yay! So back in 2015, many headlines were written about how eating bacon will give you cancer. The International Agency for Research on Cancer had just published their findings adding processed meat to the list of Group 1 carcinogens, and red meat additionally was listed as probably carcinogenic. News writers everywhere... That's uh, that's Group 2A, right? Yes. News writers everywhere freaked out about the opportunity to write stories about cancer-causing breakfasts. In fact, we even talked about it on our episode on fad diets. 
I, I, <laughs> my phone autocorrected too fat to diet. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't talked about keto that much. Yeah. <laughs> it was in that show, though. Was it? Yeah. And uh, Jem covered the China study, which is where oh, he talked about. I forgot about meat. that. Yeah. It was a while ago. <laughs> Good Lord. So some background. <laughs> it's apparently the key phrase for this show. Red meat includes muscle meat from all mammals, including pork, beef, lamb, and goat. Don't believe the pork producers who tell <laughs> yeah. you that yep. it's just another white meat. Pork, the other white meat. That is something that comes up all the time. When like, people, to people believe it. Yeah, yeah people they believe definitely it. Like do. it's just a made-up lie. It was a a hugely <laughs> successful marketing PR campaign. campaign. Absolutely. But it looks white when you cook it. <laughs> <laughs> Processed meats include things like hot dogs and sausages, but also salami, pepperoni, jerky, corned beef, and canned meat products. Almost anything you can get at the deli counter is considered a processed meat. Right. Yeah. And anything that comes in sausage form is definitely a processed <laughs> meat. Yeah. I, I feel like some people don't appreciate how many things fall under the category of processed meat. Yes, mm -hmm. I concur with that. Mm -hmm. It's that whole, what, this magical animal that has bacon, pork, and sausage? Dad, those all come from the same animal. <laughs> yeah, right, he's a, a wonderful, magical animal. <laughs> uh, meats that are simply cut or ground, like ground beef, count as red meat, but not as processed meat for this purpose. The IARC is a research group consisting of experts from many countries, which classifies things into categories based on their human carcinogenic or cancer-causing properties. There are four categories. Group 1, carcinogenic to humans, for sure. Group 2 may be carcinogenic, and Group 2 has two subcategories. 2A is probably carcinogenic, and 2B is possibly carcinogenic. 2B has come up with us in the past when we discussed Wi-Fi. Yeah, um, right. Wi-Fi was classified as uh, Group 2B, possibly carcinogenic. Unlikely. <laughs> well, that is the question. <laughs> group 3 are the unclassifiables, mostly things for which there is not enough evidence one way or the other. And Group 4 is probably not carcinogenic. Side note, only one substance has ever been categorized into Group 4. Oh, right. <laughs> So what it's called it? caprolactam, and it's a precursor to nylon. Uh, it's not harmless, though. Exposure to it can, especially like chronic exposure to people working in factories, it's used in things like yoga pants, stuff like that. So exposure to it can cause irritation, rashes, skin peeling, headaches, and confusion. It just probably doesn't cause cancer. So... Even water isn't in that category. Well, but it hasn't been the thing. Like the thing oh, is, right. it, hasn't it hasn't been, been studied to to test right. whether it's carcinogenic because right. there's no reason to think it would be. Yeah, right. and this group has like a lot of shit to do, right? So they have to yeah. triage what things we are not wasting study. our time. Yeah, exactly. No, I for I forgot about that process. <laughs> So in 2015, as I mentioned, the IARC added processed meat to category one, definitely carcinogenic to humans. And uh, this is one reason why they don't study things like water. It was done after looking at over 800 studies on cancer in humans. So they don't do these kinds of things lightly at all. Mm -hmm. uh, the WHO website has a great FAQ on the subject. One of the best questions, what is in meat that causes cancer? And specifically mammalian meat, not things like poultry or fish. So we don't entirely have the answer to it, but we do have a few good avenues of research. One of which is that meat contains heme a component of blood, which when broken down by our bodies forms N-nitroso compounds. In addition, some things added to meat during processing like nitrite preservatives also generate N-nitroso compounds in the gut. 
These compounds have been found to damage the lining of the intestines, which then need to do more replication in order to heal themselves. And increased replication increases the risk of the kinds of mutations which cause out-of-control replication, which we call cancer. Consequently, the kinds of cancer most often associated with increased processed meat consumption is colorectal cancer. Uh, But some links have also been found to pancreatic cancers and stomach cancers, although those are less clear-cut. Other theories as to the causal mechanisms include some link to the iron in meat, and there are also suggestions that gut microbiome could play a role. And I mean, it seems like the more we look into this, like gut microbiome just controls everything about us. (laughs) Well, there's more of them than there are of us. Exactly, yeah. And uh, yeah, yeah, that's really the frontier of research. For sure. There. As an extra gut punch, (laughs) some methods of cooking are more likely to cause extra carcinogenic compounds to be released or created, namely the ones that cause the meat to be in direct contact with a heat source, such as barbecuing or pan frying. So all the ways that makes the things more delicious yep. also makes them more cancery. The more char, the more cancer. And yeah, I still barbecue anyway because it's worth it. <laughs> so I know what you're all thinking. Not you specifically around this table, but our listeners. How much salami can I eat before I get the butt cancer? <laughs> <laughs> the IARC doesn't do numbers like that. They only research whether something causes cancer, not how much it causes cancer. Yeah, it's another thing we talked about in the yeah, Wi-Fi. Yeah. Some other agencies, however, have provided guidelines. 100 grams or less of red meat per day, which is an uncooked weight, and as little processed meat as possible. Ooh. There's basically no safe level. Uh, so <laughs> It's like nicotine. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're going to get to that. Yeah. Quoting from a uh, UK cancer research site. The latest study analyzed data from half a million UK adults and found that moderate processed and red meat eaters had a 20% increased risk of bowel cancer compared to low meat eaters. To put this in context, for every 10,000 people on the study who ate 21 grams of red and processed meat a day, 40 were diagnosed with bowel cancer. Eating 76 grams of processed or red meat a day caused 8 extra cases of bowel cancer per 10,000 people. So a 20% increase isn't like you ate some bacon, therefore you have a 20% chance of getting colorectal cancer. That's not how it works. Jem did a much better job of explaining this in his segment. (laughs) But it was also much longer. (laughs) Quoting again. Thank you. (laughs) A 2018 review of the evidence found an increased risk of bowel cancer for every 50 grams of processed meat and 100 grams of red meat someone eats a day. The latest study looked at even smaller amounts and found an increased risk starting at just 25 grams of processed meat a day, the equivalent of one rasher of bacon. This confirms that no matter how much processed meat you eat, eating less can reduce your bowel cancer risk. So, it takes very little processed meat to increase your risk, but statistics like 20% increased risk sounds like if you eat charcuterie plate once in a while, you're for sure going to die. When, in fact, 8 extra cases per 10,000 people isn't exactly a death sentence. For example, a lot of articles compare the risk of meat to the risk of smoking. Stats from a UK cancer research infographic indicate that tobacco causes 86% of lung cancers or 19% of all total cancers, while processed meats cause 21% of bowel cancers or 3% of all cancers. If no one in the UK smoked, 64,500 cases of cancer would be prevented, while if no one in the UK ate any processed meat, 8,800 cancers would be prevented. Processed meat is way less dangerous than smoking. It's also... Is it more common? No idea. I'm sorry to interrupt you with a question. That was very rude. <laughs> no, but I didn't look up which is more common. What? Like, 
I think eating processed meat is more common than smoking these days, but I'm actually not sure. <laughs> and I'm not sure how the rates of smoking in the UK compare to those here. Yeah. It seems more common on TV, <laughs> but no idea. Processed meat is way less dangerous than smoking, but it's also more delicious. Still, the IARC estimates about 34,000 cancer deaths worldwide per year are attributable to processed meat, and as meat consumption is only growing worldwide, those numbers are on track to grow also. But please remember, only one thing ever has been found to definitely not be the cause of cancer. We're all slowly dying as soon as we're born. Enjoy life. Enjoy sandwiches. <laughs> Bravo. End of segment. <laughs> if, if, if I didn't have other reasons for not eating meat, I would just f***ing eat that bacon. I don't care. <laughs> I was eating salami while I put together that segment. <laughs> it was delicious. One thing to keep in mind, too, is that anytime you look at that intake and, and when we think about the trends, there's been a big trend towards more charcuterie and everybody in the world is eating more meat. And, and a lot of it is, in fact, processed because it's the cheapest way to deal with meat, right? Especially in places where refrigeration or sanitation or whatever is kind of not always reliable, let's say. So a lot of people are getting this processed meat. And then what is it taking the place of? So especially the field mm. of the microbiome is is so huge and I am by no means well-versed in it. But one of the things I do know and that we always keep coming back to is that fiber, 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 fiber. That's what we need in a lot of cases to feed those gut bacteria. And so if you're switching away from plants that have fiber to more meats, so then you're not getting that benefit of something and you're getting something that is potentially negative. So mm -hmm. that's something to look at as well. One of the uh, things in the FAQ was, well, what if I have some ham, but I put it on whole wheat bread? <laughs> Will those things cancel each other out? <laughs> and they were like, no, that's not how it works. That's not how that works. That's not how anything works. Yeah, well, but they often would suggest things like, you know, reduce your amount of meat in your meal and increase veggies to fill it instead. Like put beans in there or legumes and uh, bulk that up that way. And so you can still have some, but also have some veggies. Right, like it doesn't, the, the fiber in the whole wheat bread doesn't neutralize the, the potential carcinogens yeah. in there. It Increased fiber may help lower your risk because of the increased fiber, but the, you still have that increased risk of the processed meats. Yeah. yeah, enjoy them every once in a while. And keep in mind, too, that like they're not necessary in a lot of ways. At one point in history, they were because there was no better way of preserving things, but they are not anymore. Sandwiches are beautiful, sandwiches are fine. I like sandwiches, I eat them all the time. I eat them for my supper and I eat them for my lunch. If I had a hundred sandwiches, I'd eat them all at once. Mm. Thank you, Ashlyn. Enjoy all things in moderation. I can get behind that. So now I'll turn it over to Lauren, who is going to talk about the things that make a sandwich a sandwich, the top and the bottom, and what it's made out of. I was waffling on how to start this segment. Did you make a waffle witch? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> a waffle market town. There are bread puns all through my segment, so just Excellent. look out for them. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm just going to come out and say it. We wouldn't have the world that we have now if it wasn't for bread. There has been arguably nothing that has shaped human history more than the discovery, development, and understanding of bread. Yes, some historians will argue that beer was the reason for the cultivation and domestication of both wheat and yeast, but while ancient beer was more nutritious and more, um, chewy than modern <laughs> beer, bread travels better and can be consumed more easily than its liquid cousin, 
So I'm on Team Bread. Team Bread! That's a fun historical fight, though. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not the first time I've had it. At the kernel of it, bread is a milled grain that is mixed with water and heated until solid. Leavening, or rising, isn't a required component. Most cultures around the world have a historical flatbread recipe, which is often cooked over a fire. The evolution of bread was the catalyst for the invention of ovens. They had bread. They wanted better bread. (laughs) Then they had ovens. Or more bread or bigger breads. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And all of those breads are so good. I know. (laughs) I've got bread going right now. Uh, Or rising. mm -hmm. It's going to be good tomorrow, hon. Make some kind of a stew or something with it. We got some naan left in the freezer, too. Mm. We have so much naan in the freezer. We should do, do something with that. Pizza. Not as amazing. Ancient bread remains are obviously much more varied in their composition than the ones that we have today. People used whatever grain they had to hand. Querns, milling stones, have been found that date back 30,000 years. And charred crumbs have been dated to 14,000 years ago at Shubaqua, at present-day Jordan. I took a class at Penzik a few years ago that was a synopsis of the presenter's master thesis on ancient grains and their properties, and each one took on water differently, cooked differently, ground differently, and did taste it differently. Each batch of bread made with wild or early domesticated grain would have been different in both taste and mouthfeel. Mm-hmm. Eventually, people realized that they could grow grain and started sowing their fields with hardier or tastier or easier to mill grains, leading to crop selection and early selective agriculture. See, this is what happens when you have the historian talk about the science of bread making. You want the how, and I'm going to give you the why and the when. (laughs) (laughs) But to get back on topic, let's look at bread in five gerunds, admittedly cribbed from a New Zealand baking site (laughs) that had it all laid out so perfectly I couldn't find a better way to discuss it. Gerund the first, mixing. Mixing is where we introduce all of the dry and wet ingredients to each other and allow the proteins to start forming. Depending on the final product, you may mix them together in a specific order, but you will need to mix them and then knead them for a specific amount of time. Overmixed bread isn't very elastic and will break easily. Undermixed bread may not come together properly, and it will have pockets inside it that won't rise. Unrisen parts of bread can have a mealy texture and a weird taste, and you get a disapproving look during bread week on the Great British Bake Off. (laughs) They come in all shapes and sizes, did they? In most breads, gluten is the reason for this difference in texture. Okay, Gluten, as we think of it, doesn't exist in flour, but there are two proteins called gliadin and glutenin that, when they mix with water, form gluten chains. For gluten-free breads, various gums or other binders are used to replace the gluten chains. Modern flours have various amounts of gluten-producing proteins for different applications. Cake flour has low protein because you don't need batter. That's K-N-E-A-D. You don't need batter. I need batter. (laughs) And high-protein, non-kneaded bread would be tough and hard to chew. So you don't use cake batter for yeah, yeah for bread. Yeah, exactly. You, you want to look at what the applications are. Yeah, you don't yeah. want like a tough, hard cake because that's what gluten does. Yeah. Um, you want, but you want that gluten in your bread. So it's actually going to trap those air pockets. Yeah. And on the opposite side, some bread recipes, especially those with high amounts of inclusions like fats or sugars, call for extra glutinous flour so as to not dilute the gluten chains in the overall product. I was thinking of Jem's Christmas bread when I was talking about that. We'll come back to gluten structure in a little bit, but first, we have to let the bread rest. That brings us to our second gerund. Gerund the second, rising. During rising, the gluten gets a chance to relax and regroup while the yeast starts to do some literal heavy lifting. The yeast feeds on carbohydrates and begins to grow, breaking down the sugars into carbon dioxide and water. 
These yeast farts are what make the dough expand. <laughs> As this happens, the gluten chains are relaxing and rearranging themselves to latticework, which holds in the carbon dioxide bubbles that surround each yeast cell. Dough needs time to prove, or to rise, to get all of these structures aligned properly. But what happens if we set off this reaction in a low-oxygen environment? It ferments. Yeah. Without an oxygen supply, the yeast can't break down the sugar all the way, and the process becomes alcoholic fermentation. That's not saying alcohols aren't produced during the oxygenated rising as well, but it's in such a small quantity that it burns off during baking. If you seal the process off from oxygen, the drunk yeasties create beer instead, though with the flour and other additives it won't be good beer. No. After rising, it's time for Jaren III, kneading. Kneading squishes out all of the big gas bubbles trapped inside the dough, allowing everything to settle. Again, you don't want to overknead and lose the elasticity, though usually you can fix that just a little tiny bit by giving the yeast some more flour to eat and repeating the rising process. But you will usually end up with a tough crust and dry exterior. Underneaded bread will still have pockets of air bubbles and the texture won't be as uniform or as nice to eat. How can you tell if a bread is kneaded the right amount? If it's underneaded, the dough will still be rather loose and kind of shaggy. And trust me, you'll know it's shaggy if you see it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You can tell you've gotten to a good place when the dough is shiny and starts to form itself into a ball. If you've been kneading for the amount of time recommended in the recipe and it still looks not quite right, keep going. Tag in a pinch kneader if need be, or switch to a bread kneading attachment on a mixer if you have one. But there's where you can get into the opposite problem. Mm -hmm. It's super hard to overknead dough by hand unless you're a power lifter and don't feel arm pain. <laughs> but a stand mixer is a different problem, and that's where your dough can get overworked and make bad bread. Dunk, 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 dunk. Yeah, tunk tunk tunk. Yep. Sounds like a great audio. An off balance uh dryer. washing machine. Yeah. I never need my bread enough. I give it a few and I don't know. What is it supposed to look like? Elastic? Sure, it's elastic. Go in the oven. It's oh. it's glossy. So what's really interesting <laughs> since I've been making the sourdough bread, it's basically no need methods. Mm -hmm. Like there's it that's the mm -hmm. whole culture of a lot of the artisanal breads. Um so I'm curious when the kneading part came in from mm. the different types of bread. Because, yeah, my bread, I fold it, but I don't knead it. It's too wet of a dough to knead it. And it's explicitly not kneading. So I'm very curious. Yeah, I didn't fall down that rabbit hole mm -hmm. when I was doing the research. But I'll keep, I'll, I'll take a look into the history of that part. Right. Um, that being said, the type of bread I make specifically tries to make the, that type of you know, really hard crust and irregular bubbles on the inside. So maybe it's just what they're going for. Probably. I don't know. Yeah, the kneading probably distributes everything a lot better. And yeah, it, it does. Nice yeah, uniform because, bubbles. Yeah, you're going for like the small crumb, which has become pretty normal. Yeah. Um, yeah. Whereas I'm not going for the small crumb. <laughs> just a reminder that if you're using a mixer, you check your knead every couple of minutes so it doesn't overwork. What does it look like when it overneeds? Hard and you can pull pieces off of it. It doesn't like stretch out it just snaps right off it's like over chewed gum mm. Gross. Yep. that's a really good analogy mm -hmm. yep i'm not going to tell you any of the ableist garbage like kneading by hand is the one true way because life's too short and everybody is different you want to make bread use whatever tool you need to make bread and bought and anyone who tells you differently <laughs> <laughs> use your kneading machine if you need to or make artisanal bread <laughs> all right we've got our smooth and shiny ball of dough and now we need the next step which is the next gerund, proofing. Proofing is just a fancy word for rising, so we're rising again. The second proof allows the yeast and gluten to repair some of the trauma of kneading, and 
for all of the chains of this gluten to form up into a lovely lattice. If you look at proved dough under an electron microscope, it's beautiful and even. It looks like lattice work. Aww. Gentle heat, not enough to kill the yeast, helps with the proving process, because yeast are more active at a slightly higher body temperature. It's like 105 to 115, usually, Fahrenheit. I always use Fahrenheit for baking, for whatever reason. Mm. I've got it in Celsius in here. Nah. Kind of body temperature, just above so, body temperature. Yeah, it's like, it's like, it's like high fever temperature. Yeah. 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 After that, it's time to kill the yeast with <laughs> baking. Adding heat makes the gases inside the dough expand and rapidly grows the dough. It's called oven spring. That was mm -hmm. a word I learned. Yep. Heat also evaporates liquid left in the dough, which burns off any of the yeast alcohols that we mentioned before that are created during the rising process. As the dough gets hotter, the yeast get more active and speed up their eating and farting process. Well, until about 46 degrees Celsius, where they start to die off. Once the yeast dies, any remaining sugars left in the dough improve the flavor and give the browned crust color, like a microscopic creme brulee topping. One sugar-producing enzyme, alpha amylase, keeps breaking down starch into sugar for about another 30 degrees Celsius after the yeast starts to die. Hmm, that's interesting. Is that from the yeast, like yeast-produced alpha yeah. amylase? Yeah. That's so that's also an additive to some commercially made breads. To, to up it, yeah. Amylase is also found in saliva. It's why when yeah. you when you chew your your bread a lot, it will taste sweeter mm -hmm. because it's breaking down the starch into sugars. Very cool. Higher heat rigidifies the gluten strands, and they begin to hold the dough into the steady structure. If you've proved and kneaded your dough to the right amount to get the gluten to form the lattice work. This structure will give you an even crumb or interior bread surface, as we were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. Laura likes her dough with the, the big pockets. I like crusty artisanal bread. Mm -hmm. So sue me. So do I. I know, oh. it's great. So good with soup. Yeah. Nice sop. Mm. Bread has to reach an internal temperature of about 98 degrees Celsius to be fully baked. When it's done baking, it's time to eat, right? <clears throat> no. We have one more very important gerund. Cooling. When you take the bread out, the crust is the temperature of the oven, and the internal structure is, as we said, about 100 degrees Celsius. The bread is also full of steam, which will make it soggy, so it's best to put it on a cooling rack where the steam can evaporate evenly, and you're not left with a soggy bottom. <laughs> different types of bread require different care in the various steps, but that's the overall science. When I was a kid, my dad would make, um, you know, you take it out of the oven, like a, a really nice braided loaf, take it out of the oven... Put it on a cooling rack, but you still just like tear into it and like yeah. dip it in like butter. Mm -hmm. Just eat it. Oh, so good. That it's sounds amazing. Still warm. Well, yeah. and a braided loaf is often going to be made of a richer dough. I don't know oh, if yeah. he did make it, but it's usually like an egg or maybe a sweet yeah. egg kind of dough. And so that one, it's not going to last long anyway because those ones have pretty bad shelf lives yeah. on them. So you're yeah. best to just eat it. It's different if you're trying to make it last for a sandwich <laughs> yep. to have it for a few days because you're probably baking more than one loaf at once. If you were to cut it right away, it's really going to affect the quality of that like mealtime yeah. loaf. And I only spoke about the yeasted breads. I didn't talk about like a baking soda or baking powdery bread or a non- Like quick bread. Bread isn't yeah. really a bread. <laughs> It yeah. is totally a bread. Mm. My mom used to make bread with yes, yes, the yes. bread machine. Mm -hmm. And <gasps> it was so good immediately out of the bread machine. Yes. And then like an hour later, it was terrible. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As soon as it cooled, it was not the same bread. Yeah. But, but it was hot. amazing right out oh, of the machine. Bread machines are our 
they're hard for that because, yeah, you get fresh bread, but then it's so good when it first comes out that you eat like three quarters of a loaf and you're like, oh, my God, I've eaten so much bread. I'm so full. And then you're like, oh, I don't want to eat the rest of this. It's no good. <laughs> then you repeat the cycle tomorrow. I'm not proud to admit that I once ate an entire loaf of potato bread by myself the hour it came out of the oven. <laughs> Sometimes bread is just so good mm -hmm. that you do that. I've yeah. done that not with bread, but with buns or something, like something yeah. smaller that was like, oh, I'll have one more. I know one more. Oh, my God, yep. these are so good. <laughs> <laughs> Laura, I need you to be proud of me. I always am, yeah, Lauren, just so you, you know. <laughs> I took out a section on the religious purposes of bread. Oh, okay. And a look at transubstantiation versus consubstantiation and the Council of Trent. <laughs> I took out a whole segment on industrialization, bakers as scapegoats, whenever, you know, Something would go wrong in a village. They yes. kill the baker. Yep. Yes. Yep. They've been Although, baking, baking something bad mm -hmm. in the bread. Yep. If you want to know more about that, I have a book to recommend. Oh, awesome. yeah. I think I've recommended this before. It is called White Bread. It is fantastic. It's in six parts and it talks about the history of modern bread and it compares it to the mm -hmm. history of where bread started and it talks about a lot of the issues like the issues with bakers and and different things like that it doesn't talk about transubstantiation sorry but i highly recommend white bread it was fantastic the dietitian recommends white bread thanks jim all the extra research i was doing i now want to do a mini series about bread which i would do on my own nobody else has to help me <laughs> no that. i'll be i'll jump in on yeah. that it's a mini-series on bread and bread politics, and I brought that up to KO this afternoon, and they're like, well, have you heard of BreadTube? What? <laughs> <laughs> is this a YouTube for bread? No, no it, is a, it is leftist, leftist YouTube. Oh, um, goodness. Yeah. Based off of bread politics. Yeah. Oh. Bread and roses being traditionally associated with uh, socialism. Yeah. Maybe look for- A lot of the BreadTube creators yeah. are great, so. Maybe look for BreadCast as a spinoff <laughs> somewhere bread in the future. Bread is great. And it really goes back a long time. And and I love bread. I think a lot of people do. But it is one of those foods that when people come to me, they kind of look down and they look kind of guilty. Oh, I eat too much bread. That's my downfall. Oh, okay. This is a problem. Why exactly? Yeah, some um, people lived on it their entire lives. It's, it's a staple. And it mm -hmm. had been in many parts of the world for a long time. It still is. Bread's eaten in many for every meal the way that say rice might be in some places or other grains would be in other places or potatoes or something like that there. It's really frustrating. They don't need to feel bad about consuming bread. There's nothing, unless you have a wheat allergy or you have celiac disease or some kind of well-confirmed reaction to bread, you can eat bread. There's nothing inherently wrong with bread, but it really gets such a bad rap. And speaking of raps, then I get the other type of people yeah. who come in and very proudly tell me, I cut out bread, I've switched to raps. And I'm like, oh, yeah? Okay. Okay. So half a dozen one. Yeah. There's it's, so many carbs in most of those wraps. Yeah. I like it's, well, it's the same thing. It's just without the air, basically. I, exactly. <laughs> no, that, that is no, basically what just it is. That's a way to say it. Yeah. Yeah. Take out a rolling pin, you got a flatbread. Now, the texture is different, and for some yeah. people with, with some gut issues in that, they can actually tolerate things like flatbreads better than risen breads for yeah. a lot of complex reasons. But again, that's a small portion of the population. So, and, and when we think about the reasons why people might 
be wanting to watch their carbohydrate intake. Say they've been told they have high blood sugar or something like that. Bread is not the biggest contributor no. in our modern world. You know, most people be like, oh, I eat too much bread. I have four slices a day. So you have two at breakfast and two at lunch. This is not a significant contributor, especially considering some of the other carbohydrate sources. <sighs> so just eat the bread. You'd probably be more full from the bread. You'd probably get more enjoyment from the bread than you would from whatever else it happens to be. And make it if you can sometime. That's one of those things, too, that when it comes to taking time to actually make our own things, like we were talking about, bread is something that a lot of people now just have not grown up with homemade Mm -hmm. bread. And I'm not saying there's a, a value to it or a, or a moral judgment or anything. It's just one of those things that has been so outsourced for many good reasons to the industry that it's just not something that we do. And it is an interesting process to go through all those mm -hmm. steps and to see it happen and, and to try different things. And the taste of it is really cool. And, and it's not that hard. It's not. You just need time. Mm -hmm. Time is the thing that you need the most. So if you need bread in half an hour and you haven't mixed anything, you're not going to get bread or you're going to get you're going, terrible You're going bread. to the store. <laughs> you're going to the yeah. store. <laughs> you're going to use my grandmother's beer bread recipe. Oh? It's like, beer and flour and like a little bit of baking soda or whatever. Okay. And you mix it all up just as a wet dough, throw it into a loaf pan, cooks in 30 minutes. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. So it's kind of a a different take on a quick bread. Mm -hmm. The process of making bread is interesting and... I don't know. I felt really proud the first time I made bread. Mm -hmm. Like, look, I made this thing. It, yeah. It is really, there's something really rewarding about doing something from scratch that is that is so often, as Laura said, outsourced, that, that, that is part of our daily lives, not something that most of us take on. Mm -hmm. Just taking that on just, just to do it. And like, it's fun. I've, oh, I love baking so much. <laughs> <laughs> but if you can't, or you ha don't have an inclination to, that's okay too. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Store-bought bread is just fine. Oh, yeah. There's nothing mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with it. And there's some really amazing bakeries out there. And definitely go eat their bread for sure. It's just if you're at all interested or don't be turned off by it just because mm -hmm. it seems kind of hard. You, you don't need to be intimidated, but also like your first loaf of bread will not be good. And that's fine. Like nobody's first anything is any good. It's still going to taste good. Hopefully, I might, <laughs> I would actually say it actually probably will be good, but it will keep getting better. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Your that, first loaf true. of bread will probably taste good to you. And as you work on it, you'll realize how much better it gets. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Have you guys ever made ice cream bread? No, no. What is this? It's something that I found when I was planning some party of ours where you basically take like a liter of ice cream and you let it melt, and then you mix flour into it, and it has all of those things that you would have in, like, a sweet dessert bread, and then you just bake it. <laughs> and so you can make, like, mint chocolate chip bread or whatever flavor of ice cream you have. Did you make it? Yeah. It and how was good. it? It was pretty good. Where does the leavening come from? I don't know. Do you, like, how long do you let it rise? It was more like a banana bread texture. Okay. Oh, so, so it ends up being a quick, a quick yeah. bread. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So then, That's you I'm know, saying, like a dessert kind yeah. of thing. Like you, you'll get a little like bit a of loaf. something or a lighter something or other, yeah. but. Hmm. Yeah. But it was pretty tasty. And it was just an interesting thing to try. Mm hmm. And, and I think that speaks to how important bread is that people have been 
trying all sorts of ways to get the bread if they didn't have the bread. <laughs> or they wanted to expand upon their bread repertoire. Well, a sandwich may be egg or cheese or even peanut butter, but they all taste so good to me, it really doesn't matter. Jam or ham or cucumber, any kind will do. I like sandwiches, how about you? Thank you, Lauren, for that excellent history on bread. I think it's really important because a lot of, like we said, a lot of people just don't Know mm -hmm. the steps of those those two very important pieces of a sandwich. Or three, if you're talking about a clubhouse. All right. So now we have to hear about what Laura's segment is. Thanks for introducing me. Awesome. So my topic is a little bit more tangential. Since we talked about what goes into a sandwich and when sandwiches were first developed, I thought I'd talk a little bit about how sandwiches have impacted our social and cultural history and, and vice versa. Awesome. There. So I'm not going to go into a deep dive, but I have a couple of examples that I thought would be, that would be good. Now, building off of Lauren's talk about bread, the sandwich as many of us know it, especially the sandwiches of our childhoods, wouldn't be possible without sliced bread. While not a sandwich in itself, sliced bread, or more precisely, pre-sliced bread sold in packages, mm -hmm. is an important invention in our modern food history. So this comes back to that industrialization of mm -hmm. food and just the way that we make food, interact with it, expect it, all of that. Sliced bread is something basic and something we take for granted most of the time. But the ability to have slices of bread readily available to anyone who can open the package is a significant time saver. Since I've been making my own crusty artisanal bread, as I was talking about, I'm becoming more familiar with slicing bread and making uniform slices that are small enough to eat, but still thick enough to support whatever fillings I'm using, isn't as easy as it seems. It requires some strength and coordination, as well as a sharp knife. So pre-sliced bread made bread more easily accessible to both people with physical challenges and children, in both cases increasing independence. My sliced bread was always also available to any cat that could hop up on the counter. They <laughs> can bite through that plastic. R.I.P. Astra. <laughs> She's been on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Sliced bread was also really important for the women working in their households, and yep. it changed a lot of their day. Sliced bread actually reduced a, a mother's workload significantly, particularly as things like factory work, shift work, and eating out during the workday were on the rise. As one mother put it in 1943, as a response to the wartime ban on pre-sliced bread, my husband and four children are all in a rush before, during, and after breakfast. Without ready sliced bread, I must do the slicing for toast, two pieces for each one. That's ten. For their lunches, I must cut by hand at least twenty slices for two sandwiches apiece. Afterward, I make my own toast. Twenty-two slices of bread to be cut in a hurry. So that's not a little bit of things to do. And that's yep. every morning. Again, we're talking about bread being a staple, and our diets today, at least... I forget that Gemini eat a very varied diet, but our diets today are generally a lot more varied. We don't use bread as much as we did because we have different alternatives. We've adopted a lot of other types of cooking and techniques and ingredients and that. But this was written in 1943. This this is wartime era and, and North American food was just different at that time. Bread really was a staple. So yeah. toast for breakfast and sandwiches for lunch was an everyday five to seven days a week thing for people. So that's a lot of slicing for someone. So this made a big difference in people's lives. 
So it's something that I think we need to point out that that saying, you know, the greatest thing since sliced bread, ha ha ha. Well, sliced bread really was a big thing. Yeah. Now, some people might argue that with the invention of pre-sliced bread, bread consumption went up because it was easier. And so people started eating more. And then the low carbers will be all like, see, bread is bad for you, yada, yada. And we can go like that. But I don't know that we have any evidence to say that it is that the net negative is there yeah. from that. Another thing that is an important part of our cultural and sandwich history is how peanut butter and jam arrived in our in our lexicon and in our diets and became that classic childhood staple. Unless you're in Australia. Although it's spreading. Yeah. It's spreading. But we don't have a <laughs> segment on Vegemite. <laughs> <laughs> now, sandwiches in North America weren't always the fastest, cheapest thing available. Is George Washington Carver going to get a shout out here at all? Not really. Oh, okay. I have a tiny little fridge puppet of him. Oh, nice. <laughs> uh, side note for him, actually, he is responsible for popularizing peanuts and for, he did write a recipe for peanut paste, but it's not actually him who brought that to the market and yeah. made it peanut butter as we know it. But he was really into peanuts. He was really into peanuts. Mm -hmm. He wrote a book saying 300 ways to use peanuts. <laughs> so, yeah. So... Sandwiches, while they're a fast food right now, when they were becoming more popular, especially here in North America, sandwiches were specifically associated with lunch or high tea. They were a slow kind of food and they were a fancy kind of food. Sandwiches were small, they were minimal, they were delicate, they were often crustless, made with um, very fine breads, very fine ingredients like watercress and cucumber and things like that. That the turn of the 20th century were a lot more refined ingredients and, and harder to find some of the time. Sandwiches were also very much associated with society women of the time because who lunched? Ladies lunched. Even the beloved peanut butter sandwich, uh, the peanut butter brought to us by Dr. John Harvey Kellogg. Yep, the guy of cornflakes and other things. <laughs> <laughs> cornflakes and religious <laughs> fundamentalism. Even that sandwich debuted on tea room menus shortly before the turn of the 20th century. It was a little bit different, though. When peanut butter sandwiches first came out, peanut butter was often paired with things like watercress or pimento. A pimento peanut butter sandwich. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Yum, yum, yum. You know what? But think of all the, the delicious things that peanut butter is in that is not sweet, like peanut soup. Oh, man. Sunday. Or peanut satay, peanut sauce. These are amazing things that go really well with savory things or spicy things. I've put pimento in my satay, so... Well, there you go. Yeah. Sometimes peanut butter was even just used to replace the actual butter on whatever sandwich they were making. Again, John Harvey Kellogg was a big proponent against using animal products. And, so and against masturbation. I said, among other things. Flora <laughs> mm -hmm. so was specifically trying to get us not into this conversation. <laughs> So he suggested, or he would just use peanut butter in place of butter in some instances. Peanut butter wasn't actually paired with jam specifically until 1904. That's the first recorded instance of a suggestion of doing that. It was suggested to be paired with crabapple jelly. It would be mm. very tasty. Yep. And I think that would be very tasty. Absolutely. My mother used to make crabapple jelly from the crabapple trees growing in our yard. And I cannot stand jelly texture, mm -hmm. but I love that taste. Weird. Jelly, I'm a jam person. Do not give me jelly because anything that 
stays gelatinous too much is <laughs> nope. But but I know that you will occasionally eat marmalade. But marmalade it has, has bits. It has bits. Yeah, yeah. but it's, it's still the, but the texture itself is still more gelatinous than. But it's most broken gems. up. As long as it has texture, it's all. But here. if it's too hard, then mm. it's kind of weird. I'm not as concerned with it, but the there's something about the clear jelly. Or like sauces that are made with certain types of starches that firm up and they never fully liquefy again. Mm-hmm. That no, <laughs> no. But I'm on a tangent here. Like terrines. Uh, <sighs> any any kind of marmalade, Seville orange marmalade, preferably. <laughs> a little ginger in there, maybe some cranberries. Oh man. <laughs> so peanut butter and jam, the combination of such. Again, it it makes sense, but it really wasn't a thing until the early 20th century. Now, bread and peanut butter technologies advanced at a similar pace. (laughs) (laughs) Just imagining somebody like building like a trebuchet or something using bread and peanut butter. Shut up. Let me talk. The advent of sliced bread and the mass commercial production of hydrogenated peanut butter occurred within a few years of each other. And this made both products easy to use and affordable for the masses. So this is when peanut butter left the ladies' high tea and became the staple of working class people and especially children there. Is hilarious to me to picture a high tea with like little quarter sandwich PB&Js <laughs> on the tray. I'm uh, doing the food for a friend's wedding this summer and they want like garden party, tea party sort of food. I want to do it. Do it. Do it. Peanut butter and apple jelly. Absolutely. But also throw in some peanut butter and watercress. No. Traditional. <laughs> <laughs> peanut butter, peanut and butter and pimento. pimento. <laughs> Michelle would be into that. Yeah, so would Oz. She loves weird shit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there you go. I've just given you your menu. (laughs) Uh, So the solidified peanut butter. And this is important. So when we're talking, when peanut butter first came out, it was what we call natural peanut butter now. The kind that you, that separates the oil and the solids and that you have to mix up every Mm -hmm. once in a while, which is my preferred kind of peanut butter. But I know most of us don't always prefer that or didn't grow up with that. We grew up with what was originally used, um, the hydrogenated kind. So your craft peanut butter here in Canada or your Skippy or Jif or something like that. Those peanut butters are no longer made with hydrogenated oils, but they've found a way to keep them nice and smooth and no mix. Turning the peanut butter into the hydrogenated kind made it a lot more shelf stable and it made it a lot easier for people to use and to want to use it. And so that's where it started really being associated with kids, like I had mentioned there, because kids could now easily go make themselves a sandwich. The bread was sliced, the peanut butter didn't need to be mixed by strong hands or anything. It was really easy to do. And it was sweet. It was sweet. It was tasty. It was filling. Um, There's a lot of calories in it, which is great for kids. And it's also relatively temperature stable compared to other types of sandwiches. So if you're thinking of uninsulated or unrefrigerated lunch boxes, it's a safer Mm -hmm. kind of option there. So I don't know that that's necessarily what people were thinking of, but it kind of worked out that way. But no peanut butter and mayo then? No. Is that a thing? Peanut butter and mayo and Bermuda onions. Uh, I'm I'm leaving. (laughs) <laughs> this, no, th- I, these have always disgusted me. They're, I, Where is I, this a thing? I've just, kids I used to babysit, this was their oh, sandwich. weird. Okay. I once witnessed my brother eat, he was seven at the time, I think, a peanut butter, jam, cheddar cheese, salami, ketchup, <laughs> alfalfa sprout oh, sandwich. Well, you gotta have the sprouts on there for vegetables. <laughs> That sounds like something Dave would try. (laughs) Sean can have little of salami. (laughs) 
So the peanut butter and jam sandwich is something, again, a lowly thing we don't think of a lot, but it had its time in history and is relatively recent. I think of it a lot. Mm-hmm. I crave it a lot. It's delicious. It's really good. It's like 30% of your meals. No, not anymore. <laughs> peanut butter is great. I became a vegetarian when I was 13. And before that, I used to love peanut butter and jam sandwiches cut into quarters, dunked in chicken noodle soup. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Interesting. Boy. I can see the saltiness yeah. being good with that. I mean, it was like Lipton, so it wasn't. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like not real chicken. I looked at the ingredients on there the other day to see, is there any chicken in it? Just chicken fat. Yeah. Everything else is like the yeast extract that they use to flavor everything. So. Yeah. But yeah, chicken fat. But sometimes I get that craving and there's no vegetarian alternative for like a fake chicken soup that I've found that doesn't disgust me. Have you tried the McCormick's um, vegetarian chicken stock? McCormick's stock cubes, beef and chicken are both vegetarian. They have a vegetable one too, but that's also vegetarian. But yeah, (laughs) their beef and chicken stock cubes are vegetarian. I'm okay without. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Like it's a taste and texture thing for me now sure. as well. Yeah, yeah. If I something feels or tastes too much like real meat, it just makes me sick. No, that's fair enough. I do not have that issue, mm-hmm. so I'm all like, make it taste the same. <laughs> all right. Anyway, back to sandwiches. <laughs> so sandwiches here started off as a more high class kind of thing before they they reached the masses, if we want to say. But in other parts of the world, not only were sandwiches associated with the ruling classes, but they were expressly forbidden for the common people. So a really good example of this is the banh mi. Now, the banh mi, not so much expressly forbidden, but I'll get to that. So banh mi sandwiches are a staple today in Vietnam, and they have spread around the world as Vietnamese culture and cuisine has spread around the world, and they are delicious. If you're not familiar... Uh, They are similar to a submarine-type sandwich, but it does not come in pizza flavor. (laughs) I bet someone has made a pizza banh mi. I guess, but what's the point? (laughs) The point of the banh mi... They're already so good. They're so good. They're so good. So this doesn't really sound like Vietnamese food when you think of it, this this bread sandwich here. So how did this whole thing start? Colonialism. Exactly, yeah. Mm -hmm. So baguettes, or just wheat breads in general, were introduced by the French to Vietnam during the French occupation in the 1860s. So because, of course, the Europeans thought they were too good for the local cuisine, they insisted on replicating their typical French foods there and not eating anything else that. So they were eating, they needed to eat breads, they needed to eat meats, they needed to eat cheeses. And some of these things they could uh, grow there. So they imported cattle and and things like that, but they couldn't get wheat to grow. So they had to import the wheat. So because of that, it was very expensive and they absolutely refused to let Vietnamese people touch the wheat. It was only for the French people. Now, this changed a bit during World War I when the French troops, most of them sailed back to Europe to go fight in the war and there was this wheat left over. So the Vietnamese people could now have access and afford it because it was just sitting there. So they started eating the bread and the wheat as well, just because it was there. They also started eating more of the um, the meats and the cheeses because they had a bunch in, in warehouses and all the soldiers were gone. So they ate them because why not? But they were still eating in the typical way that the French were doing it, which was having baguette and some sliced meat and cheese on the side, but just all out on a platter. Again, that sort of mezzi platter. So this all wasn't turned into a sandwich until the defeat of the French in the 1950s, 1954 or so. And this is when local people, so the French were gone, they left, and but of course the wheat had, tradition had started, and uh, the local peoples 
we're finally able to start altering the French recipes because as much as after World War I, they were allowed to eat some of the same foods, they couldn't change it. They had to keep it the same. And so this is when the banh mi was born. So first they started putting the fillings in bread for quick meals on the go. And then they started changing out the fillings. So instead of having the cured meats and the cheeses, they swapped those for um, local, local fillings instead of butter, because of course they weren't eating a lot of that. They added mayonnaise and they added their pickled vegetables to it. And so we got this combination that became the banh mi, but they kept the baguette because it was a nice sturdy way of packing in all this goodness. And the birth of the banh mi carries local and foreign traditions. So it's it's a really neat thing. Um, and in some ways, it's a good example of people taking back their culture and their cuisine and still being free to experiment and, and grow. And this has become incredibly popular around the world, as I mentioned. So sometimes a sandwich is more than just a sandwich. <laughs> and sometimes a sandwich is never meant to be eaten at all. Has anyone ever heard of the rain sandwich? How is rain spelled? R-A-I-N-E-S. Hmm. No. Nope. Okay. So this sandwich emerged as a way to skirt the Reigns Law of 1896 in New York City. So this was a prohibition-style law meant to stop Sunday <laughs> drinking and shut down those hole-in-the-wall saloon types uh, that didn't serve full meals. Basically the places where uh. not rich people went to drink on their day off from work. Exempt from this law were hotels, especially fancy hotels, where the city's wealthiest white people ate on Sundays. So they could still get their booze with their full meal and, and that on Sundays, but the watering holes wouldn't be allowed to. So these small bars got creative, and they started doing things like creating guest rooms, see the air quotes around <laughs> that, out of things like closets and storage spaces and basements and, and that. Uh, so that they could start calling themselves hotels. And they also started serving full meals because bars would often serve snack-type foods. But there was some specific discussion with uh, politicians at the time saying what consisted a meal. And there were specific things that were said, well, a sandwich consists of a meal. <laughs> and so the bars took this to heart. So they started making the rain sandwich. Is this like they make a single sandwich and like essentially rent it out to people? They don't rent it out. They just serve it when you have the drink, and then they immediately take it back and okay. then serve it to the next table. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Yeah. So it, it was made of the cheapest possible ingredients. It was a thing to take out and say, look, you ordered the food. Here you go. Now you can have your whatever you ordered. <laughs> and then just moved around the bar there. Ooh. Now, there are rumors that some places would use the same sandwich for a week or more because they really didn't care. And there's other rumors that one establishment, actually, they called theirs a brick sandwich and literally served a brick between bread. <laughs> it's a sandwich. It's a sandwich. So they they did all sorts of things like that there. Now, with uh, Prohibition coming in and the other challenges and seeing all, how all these establishments were skirting this law in many creative ways... The Reigns Law was repealed in 1923, and the Reigns Sandwich disappeared with it. <laughs> sandwiches are beautiful, sandwiches are fine. I like sandwiches, I eat them all the time. I eat them for my supper and I eat them for my lunch. If I had a hundred sandwiches, I'd eat them all at once. So, sandwiches... I think, play an important role in a lot of people's lives. I think for a lot of us, we've eaten a lot of sandwiches in our lives growing up. And uh, maybe even now we eat a lot of sandwiches, like them or loathe them. They're, they've been important there. But what is a sandwich, Jem? <laughs> 
So here at LUEE, we have impaneled a jury to <laughs> decide the tough questions. Once and for all, is this a sandwich? Everyone, uh, I would like uh, everyone to start, if they could, by just giving a basic ske- sketch of their definition of a sandwich. Carbs or other holders surrounding <laughs> ingredients. <laughs> okay. <laughs> a bun or bread, hopefully soft, but with some good structure, with some nice toppings inside. I'm going to go with some type of bread product. It could be risen or not. There could be one or more. (laughs) It can be in various shapes. However, it is not joined together in a permanent fashion, and Mm. it has fillings inside. Mm. Everybody's seen seen the game we're playing. (laughs) So... (laughs) For me, uh, I'm 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 trying to play by the spirit uh, of this uh, sandwich trap that we've laid for ourselves uh, with uh, previous references to sandwich cast. In the spirit of classification, uh, I'm going to to try to narrow my definition. So I would say it has to have bread, leavened or unleavened. That bread must be prepared, uh, baked, for example, separately from the meal itself it must have an edible non-bread filling (laughs) and i would also like to make a distinction between a sandwich a noun to sandwich verb uh (laughs) and sandwich adjective um so so this can allow us to what about sandwich earl <laughs> sandwich. We're not Earl. talking about the person sitting in the House of Lords at present. Yeah. Oh, I mean, if uh, we're gonna make all these distinctions, Jim. Yeah. S- sandwich, comma Kent. <laughs> um, and I, and I think that this is important because it, it allows us to describe something as a sandwich, or 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 say that it is sandwiched, and use that description figuratively, um, without us having to say that anything that is sandwiched is literally a sandwich. Mm. I see see your pedantry coming out. So like a quilt sandwich is not a edible sandwich. Right. Do not eat the polyfilla. (laughs) (laughs) So to everyone listening, as you can probably tell by now, this is essentially the end of the episode. You're free. We release you. You do not have to listen to this part. (laughs) You want to, though. (laughs) You know you do. Feel free to stop listening here. This is going to be exhausting. Do I have to be here for this? <laughs> so without, further, without oh. further ado, is this a sandwich? A slice of bread? No. No! Not without toppings. I'll also say no. Two slices of bread? No! No. Not without filling. Okay, I, I also agree. Three slices of bread. Is the middle one toasted? <laughs> Is the middle one moistened? (laughs) Is the middle one a different flavor? (laughs) Do we we have rye, whole wheat, rye? Yes, that is a sandwich. No, that is not a sandwich. That is not a sandwich, and you know it. 
I did say non-bread filling, but I am I am inclined to no, say that rye no, whole wheat rye is a sandwich. No, you think it's funny, and that's why you're saying that. It is not okay. a sandwich. Okay. Different flavor. If it's not a different flavor or in any way moistened, it is not a sandwich. It's uh, just a stack of bread. Okay, so my my next one was a loaf of bread turned 90 degrees. <laughs> no. no. But but if you take two loaves of different breads and swap every second no. slice. No. Okay, so we need fillings, right? Yes, non-bread fillings. Two slices of buttered bread. Put together with the butter in the middle? Does it matter if one of them is facing the other way? Yes. (laughs) That matters. (laughs) Some kids I used to babysit used to have mayo and mustard sandwiches, so... Our daughter has ketchup sandwiches quite regularly. So I will call that a sandwich. Yeah, it is a sandwich if the butter is in the middle. It's hard. So if you butter the top of a sandwich, does it stop being a sandwich? No. Well, then, so long as both slices are buttered, it doesn't matter. <laughs> but why would you stack it with a buttered side up? Like, Well, you butter a slice of toast and you put in, you butter another slice of toast or bread and put it on top. If you eat them together, it's a sandwich. If you eat them separately, it's a stack of toast. Okay, okay. I think we need to distinguish between toast and sandwiches here for a minute. We don't need to distinguish anything. Toast is inherently, not inherently, but it is frequently presumed to be like open face and it is not a sandwich unless you specifically make it that. But an open face sandwich is a legitimate thing. Nope. Yes, it is. (laughs) And I quote, He had no subsistence but a piece of beef between two slices of toasted bread. (laughs) Yeah, that's fine. He made a sandwich with it. I'm saying a slice of toast with butter is not a sandwich. But a slice of bread with butter? So I also don't... Okay, so Laura's in the boat that a slice of buttered toast is an open-faced sandwich. (laughs) I am not... No, that is explicitly not what I said. (laughs) Is butter not a topping or a filling? So the thing is, I hesitate... Okay, Lauren (laughs) often calls mayo sandwich lube, and it's very upsetting. (laughs) That would be very upsetting. Right? Yes. I'm just glad that it's very opaque, because if it was translucent, it would be even worse. (laughs) Anyway, the challenge with butter is that, I don't know about you guys, but when I grew up, butter was an assumed part of a sandwich, the way that bread is an assumed part of a sandwich, but something like mustard or mayo or whatever other type of spread or or filling was not, if that makes sense. So I grew up, I, I hate sandwiches this way, but I grew up where like, you're making a sandwich, so you butter the bread, and then you do whatever else you're going to do. So to say that two pieces of bread with just butter on them is a sandwich in itself. So one slice of buttered it's bread, pre-sandwich. no, I don't think, like, no, that's not a sandwich to me. If it's butter the way that Jem eats it, Whoa. it's sufficient butter. Like it kind butter of the way Huxley eats it. It's a Where meal. Where did you learn it from, Jem? <laughs> Sandwich cast bringing out the guns. Okay, okay, okay. So, so this is my hesitation because I don't see it as a condiment the way that mayo is a condiment. Because butter, my upbringing was that butter was the universal condiment. It was so universal as bread. I only got butter on a sandwich if it was a special occasion. <laughs> yeah, see, it was, yeah, no, it wasn't like that for me, so. Okay, well, let's let's move on. But I'm curious, the Rain's Brick Sandwich. <laughs> Can't eat it. Yeah, not edible. Not edible, not a real sandwich. Okay, uh, I agree. A... Bowl of cinnamon toast crunch <laughs> no. with milk. Not a sandwich. No. Not a sandwich. 
witch. Okay, no, I agree. Okay, okay. Come on. (laughs) He's got to put some things on there that he also thinks are not sandwiches. Soup in a bread bowl. Is there a lid for the bread bowl? Yes. How viscous is a soup? (laughs) Let's let's call it a, a chowder. But it still couldn't survive on its own outside of the bread. Mm, it would spill out. Then no, not a sandwich. Uh, I'm really on the fence about this one, but can't pick it up and eat it with one hand, so no. Not a sandwich because it's not eaten. Again, it can't survive on its own. And also it's not at all eaten like a sandwich is eaten. So if a toddler deconstructs a sandwich and eats it, then it was never a sandwich, Laura? Is that the ontology that we're presuming here? Don't use Huxley as an example for things. He eats handfuls of butter, Chad. That's my boy. (laughs) I wish I was kidding. For the record, I will say that soup in a bread bowl, with or without top, is a sandwich. Because obviously soup without the top would be an open-faced sandwich. (laughs) It is not a sandwich! Okay, moving on. not a sandwich! A hamburger. Yes, absolutely. Of course. Yes, this is a hamburger sandwich. Okay, wait, are you not even going to address the fact that you haven't asked us whether an open-faced sandwich is a sandwich? I was, we haven't I, got there yet. I, I, okay, I'm okay. getting there. I feel like this is the, a weird there are lo- There are lots of weird, like, like, uh, like blind and corners and twists and turns in this list. Okay. Uh, I have reordered it so many times. <laughs> You're uh, trying to make so, us hate so, ourselves. <laughs> a, a Big Mac. For me, that's not edible. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's a sandwich. Yeah, okay. It's got that extra slice of bread. So, like, you know, you're... So does a club. Yep. Yeah, it's like a club. Okay. A hot dog. No, because to go with Laura's definition, mm-hmm. the bun is held together. Why are we going with Laura's definition? It's this definitely a sandwich. Very tenuous. No, but see, that's not what I meant. What I oh. meant. So, it can be held together because I also say that wraps, a wrap sandwich... Is a sandwich. A burrito okay. is a sandwich. That's true. What I'm saying nope. is that that one's not. Okay. <laughs> we can we can fight about that. But what I'm saying is that the dough or bread is not permanently fastened in a oh. continuous way. Because we're cutting out pierogi. Be because that yeah. would be a dumpling. Something like that. A, a corn dog or Pogos. a pig a pig in a blanket, you're saying, is not a sandwich? No, it's no, not it's a sandwich. Not. A pig in a blanket is. No. I'm divided about corn dog. Corn dog, no, we'll see, but corn dog, that's a batter. So that's, that's, yeah, even, it's not, then that, then you could say like a chicken nugget is a sandwich if you're talking about that. It is so weird. This this province is weird. Where I came from, they're not corn dogs, they're pogos. We use the brand name, thank you, (laughs) even if they're not pogos. (laughs) Okay, so, Laura, you still haven't answered the question. Hot dog, is it a sandwich? Yeah, it's a sandwich. No. Okay, I think a hot dog is definitely a sandwich. So, Lauren, you're concerned about the bun being contiguous. No, a I'm hot dog where the bun is inedible to you. Where the bun is a little too small, so it tears, and you end up with two bun pieces. <laughs> or a hot dog when you make the when you make the wieners and you forget that you don't have any buns and you end up using bread. Yeah, <laughs> so many childhood hot dogs. <laughs> Not a sandwich. I hated that. I would refuse to eat them. I'm no. like, nope, this is ruined. That was bad. Oh, bad and wrong. Oh God. That's something for you to look forward to, Laura, when our kids get. <laughs> I'm sorry, you don't mean like look back on already? Yeah. <laughs> and so, no, that is obviously a sandwich. Yeah, it's a sandwich. Uh, okay, so open face sandwich. Yes. No. It is 
I don't think it matches the definition, but it is so common and so historical that I can't say that it's not. Especially the ones with piles of gravy. That's not a sandwich. You have to eat that with a f***ing fork. See, in my family, we would put two slices on those. And then it's a sandwich. Yeah, same here. <laughs> An open-faced sandwich cut in half and folded back over on itself. Yes. Well, wait, what? See, when I was growing up, we would take one piece of peanut butter. Well, excuse me, one piece of peanut butter. <laughs> we would take one piece of bread, put peanut butter on it, and then put in like some raisins or something and fold it over itself. It was a peanut butter fold over, which was a type of sandwich. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Of course that's a sandwich. Yes. It has bread on both sides. Exactly. Okay. Pizza. No. 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 It would have fit my definition pre 2 p.m. today, uh, <laughs> but... No, I have, the bread is not baked separately. So I will say, no, it is not a sandwich. Oh, that's where that came from. Okay. <laughs> Two pizzas stacked on top of each other. Yes. Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Which way are this they facing? <laughs> <laughs> also, also, are they pre-baked and then inverted? Or are you stacking two unbaked pizzas and cooking them? <laughs> stuffed crust right there that's a quesadilla (laughs) (laughs) which is a sandwich (laughs) no because the bread was cooked separately in a quesadilla Uh, that's not my definition i don't give a shit about his definition (laughs) a wide slice of new york style pizza folded as it is eaten no 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 gross i'm sorry i'm not even waiting my turn no wait did you blot it with the paper towel first oh jesus i mean sure it fits my definition (laughs) But gross. I'm so disappointed <laughs> about this. Uh, a pizza pop or calzone. Here we get into Laura's, it has to, like, the yeah. squished around the outside. And again, it's n- the crust is not baked separately. So no, not a pizza. Not a sandwich. <laughs> I would say Neither it is a pizza. pizza nor yeah. a sandwich. <laughs> yeah. um, so I think it's important to distinguish dumplings from sandwiches. And I feel like a pizza pop is a dumpling. How about a panzerotti? Isn't that just the same thing, but a different size? Yeah, it's just the same thing, but Thunder <laughs> yeah. Bay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I've i been going back and forth. I'm not sure that I classify it as a dumpling. I might put it in its own separate thing, but it is not a sandwich. It's the octoparrot. <laughs> but I have, a, I have a much harder time with a Hot Pocket because that's a different shape. Mm-hmm. Is that on your list too or no? Uh, that, was, that was my next item. Okay. <laughs> But the dough is still contiguous. So think of it like a steam bun, like like a bow or something. You say hot pockets are not bow. Sort of... <laughs> no, no, no. But they're both like it's made yeah. from one ball of dough, but it's but it's sealed, right? It's not that. And they're both kind of cooked. Like the dough is still cooked. Okay. I know you don't care hot about that. Hot pockets are dumplings. Got it. Yeah. But I would still like a bow. I would call it a, more of a dumpling than anything, even though I don't think it's actually a dumpling mm-hmm. but it's there are not only a like five categories of food Lauren, so. <laughs> sandwich cereal pizza so so since we're on... cereal is a soup <laughs> <laughs> yes no I, three bean I'm with latte. you there three bean soy three latte, latte. Is a, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um so since we're on the subject of dumplings a raviolo or a pierogi no dumpling dumpling okay I, I agree not not technically bread not close enough to bread uh lasagna no no you got your layers. Many layered sandwich. Um, Durham no, wheat semolina. Yeah, Durham wheat semolina. That's what I said. Not bread flour. When we because this is from the previous episode, where and I agree it is a casserole. No, oh, okay. Yep. I, I feel like I may have disagreed with you at the time, but now I agree with you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> a delicious pie. Does it have a top layer? Yes. 
Still no, because they're not baked. Well, they're not baked separately. Well, that's my definition. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We don't have to deal with Jeff's no. definition. <laughs> I know. No. Lauren, there are no. Okay. You know what? I'm I'm going to go with pie as a casserole. <laughs> <laughs> the filling can't stand apart on its own. Earlier today, well, it depends on the pie. It depends on true, the pie. True. If you use too much starch, it could. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. That apple pie. Mm, got, no, got but, apple but pie it, it would just like... Bleh. It would just no, wouldn't it? Yeah, we, that's it would what be we're a talking stack about. Stand, we're talking about literally stand on its own. Like mm-hmm. you know, it's not that gooey. In, in, so pie sandwich or no? No, because the crust should be sealed to itself, making it a contiguous crust. <laughs> Therefore, not a sandwich. So would that make? Is it baked? Would that dumpling, make? Okay. <laughs> would that make a shepherd's pie an upside down open faced sandwich? <laughs> no, <laughs> a shepherd's pie is it's barely a, a pie. Yes, it's a casserole. <laughs> It's it's potatoes and meat. I just wanted to hear Ashley laugh. <laughs> <laughs> it is a shepherd's pie is a pie only in that it is baked in a pie-like dish. Okay, so a panino or panini if you really have to. I don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> so so a panini is like two slices of bread with stuff that's smushed in a machine. Yeah, yeah, or it's a just, bun. Yeah, yeah okay. uh, but you know, it's yes, a panini is a sandwich. Yeah. It's put in a press. Yes. Yes, it is very literally it's a sandwich. It's put in a sandwich press. I agree. A panini put into one of those uh, sandwich presses that were popular in the 90s that turned the sandwich into a Hot Pocket. You remember those things? Yeah, yes. we had one. Oh, you burned the f*** out of your mouth. Yep. <sighs> no. <laughs> is it a dumpling? <laughs> it is now a dumpling? It is an abomination. <laughs> it's no longer edible. Um, yeah. Yes. I'm going to say yes, because I feel like if you start off as a sandwich, a, like a legitimate sandwich. Uh-oh, you know oh, where Jeff is not. going with this. I have, I, have, I have bad news for you about the way pies are made. <laughs> do, do I finally get to put in my stuff about the Council of Trent and transubstantiation versus consubstantiation? <laughs> no. No. Is it spiritually a sandwich or does it literally Literally become a sandwich? Remember, people, we have pie to eat after this. (laughs) I think that's still a sandwich. Okay. Uh, Where where am I here? Oh, um, uh, yes, yes. It's still a sandwich. A Hydrox or one of those knockoff Hydroxes that are so popular these days. Uh, The cookie sandwich. Oh, you horrible person. (laughs) Um, No, it is a cookie. Yes, it is a sandwich cookie. It is a cookie. It is, in fact, two cookies with something sandwiched in the middle. Yes, I, I agree it with Laura. It is a sandwich and it is the verb sense, not the noun. It, it is a sandwich cookie, sandwich being used as an adjective, but it is not a sandwich. Not a sandwich. No, not bread. Um, so is a pretzel, not bread. A so. What about a pretzel bun? If people agree that uh, a sandwich cookie can be a sandwich, is a gingerbread house a sandwich? Is he made of house? <laughs> Or, or is the house made of flesh? He screams because he does not know. <laughs> uh, no, it is a weird structure and usually has no filling. Yeah, you got icing and candies. Well, a deacon, can you take? Can you reconfigure a gingerbread house to be a sandwich? No, yes. that's not. No, 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 no. That, Absolutely that, yes. That you can reconfigure a bunch of stuff. That doesn't make it so. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm not saying a gingerbread house is a okay. sandwich. I'm saying you could take apart a gingerbread house and make a sandwich. Okay. No, with I, peanut butter and watercress. What, like, so <laughs> no, no, just, jujubes would be the filling? Yeah, or whatever, yeah. icing, I don't no, care. I, uh, I disagree yeah. because yeah. I would say that a gingerbread house does not have any bread unless 
for your gingerbread, you're using the classic gingerbread the loaf, which is delicious. I've made that. Yeah. Um, uh, rather than a cookie. Uh, although gingerbread loaves are quick breads, I don't think we need to get into the quick bread versus <laughs> yeast. See you earlier bread in the show. Discussion. Well, we already talked about whether it's like risen or R- not. Risen so is I not even required. So exactly. So I think like you could make a sandwich out am of I gonna stones. Am I going to have to? Am I going to have to backpedal on my cookie not being a bread take? Cookie hmm, is not maybe, a bread. Maybe cookie is a bread. It's got. Isn't stuff cookie? In isn't it? cookie it's a sweet flour, flatbread, Laura? Yeah. No, why nope. not? Is no. cracker bread? Because it's made from pie dough, and okay. therefore makes it a pie. I think I think I think <laughs> I might. The original kajkas were made from from pie dough. I think we might have to restart the segment. Nope. No. <laughs> oh, no. Continue. Okay, one of those um, prepackaged Ritz cracker sandwiches. You. Ritz, and then some sort of cheese or peanut yeah, butter. The cheese doesn't count as a food stuff, so no. Yes, and delicious. Cracker sandwiches are sandwiches. I think, I think a cracker is a flatbread. It is. So, yeah. It's not lavash. <laughs> a cracker, a slice of cheese and another cracker, presumably falls into the same category. It's certainly more a sandwich than the, the prepackaged Ritz. I think we can all agree. Mm-hmm. But, it, but if you can eat 20 of them in a sitting, is it really a sandwich? You make small sandwiches. <laughs> little I don't know. Ones, have you I ever mean... been to a wedding shower? You can eat 20 of those sandwiches in a sitting, too. Okay, I try okay. not to. A pita. <laughs> Dipped in, say, hummus or baba ganoush. No, that's dipping. No. No, not dipped. I agree. A pita with hummus or baba ganoush spread upon it. Does it have any other toppings than than hummus or baba ganoush? No. Are you eating the whole thing at once, or are you, like... Presumably with bites. No, well... (laughs) Answer the questions, Lauren. (laughs) I just don't want Newman to trap me in some sort of sandwich. <laughs> we see the trap being laid, but we don't know how it works. <laughs> no. No, it's an open-based sandwich. <laughs> That's a sandwich. It has sandwich in the definition. No, but I've already stated my yeah. agreement. The fact that it has a sandwich in the title doesn't mean that it's... Yeah. yeah. Is it folded over on itself? Not yet. <laughs> if it is not folded over on itself, then someone went was a little excessive in their dipping, and that is all. Okay. Well, we all knew where it was going. Yeah. I know. I know. I'm trying to. Yeah. Move it along. Okay. So, so I would say uh, a pita with hummus spread on it is a sandwich. No. Yeah, it's an open face sandwich. No. No. Uh, but uh, presumably, we all agree it is a sandwich. Either once folded or uh, once folded and cut along the folded edge. <laughs> okay, so my question would be, maybe you already have this in here. Is it a sandwich if you cut it in half and then put the hummus inside the cut part? Because like, I think oh, if you like open it up like a yeah. pocket, I, I, think, I think so. Yes. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yes. Because okay. then it's cozy and it's little in its little sandwich home. <laughs> so so let's let's get into wraps. A falafel wrap is that a sandwich? Sometimes I think wraps are sandwiches, and sometimes I'm having an existential crisis about what I define food as, so I'm going to say no right now. I'm having a hard time with burrito versus sandwich and whether burrito deserves to be its own category. It does. Burrito but, is a food group. But because I think hot dogs are for sure a sandwich, I'm going to say, yes, this is a sandwich. See, that was a slippery slope that hot dogs let you down. So that's why <laughs> hot dogs are not a sandwich. Wraps are a sandwich. I think burritos could be a large subgroup. But I also think they're a type of sandwich. They're not a sub, Laura. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Walked right into that one. 
Ugh. So yeah, I think a falafel wrap is a is a sandwich. Um, Lauren, would it change your mind if the falafel wrap were, were sliced along either edge? <laughs> you know, it would probably change my mind tomorrow. Right now, I'm just going to take okay. my line in the sandwich. <laughs> we all knew it was coming. A burrito. Not a sandwich. No. Yes. 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 A uh, quesadilla. I think we already talked about quesadilla in the pizza abomination. Yeah, but so, do yeah. you remember what you said? <laughs> I don't remember what you I said. You said it was a sandwich. Yes, yeah. quesadilla is a sandwich. I thought you said no. I think yes. It's, yeah, it's a grilled cheese sandwich. Yeah, it's it's a sandwich. <laughs> I, I think I saw like a kid's menu uh, at a restaurant describe a quesadilla as a Mexican grilled cheese and uh, like a Mexican grilled yeah. cheese sandwich. And I was mad about it. I will yeah. allow it as a way to get children to try new things. Yep. There you go. Quesadilla, yes. Burrito, no. Some of us, an enchilada, no, no. Casserole. I'm not 100 percent sure what an enchilada. So uh, take a burrito uh, and then put more sauce and cheese on top and bake it. Casserole. It's yeah. It's not always a, a burrito. It's often just a filling rolled in a tortilla. Mm-hmm. Of sure. Some I, was, kind. I was trying to so simplify. It, all, okay. all I was saying is that the because part of the thing with burrito too. I don't know if anybody here is, but that the folded in packageness of it might be something that makes it seem like not a sandwich. But mm-hmm. enchiladas often are open at the ends. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So again, uh, yeah, not a sandwich. Same as cannelloni, not a sandwich. Exactly. See, I would say that it definitely is a sandwich. Really? What? Yeah. <laughs> It's a burrito just with extra stuff on top. Like, yeah. I Hold see... it with one hand and eat it. Yeah, but, but you can't do that a with a lot of... Sandwich. Yeah, exactly. Um, Fits yeah, my definition. So I see how it does, but I still don't think it's... Um, <laughs> I, I can see how you would go there, but I don't think it's true. Casserole. A uh, taquito. Or chimichanga. I try not to eat anything from 7-Eleven. <laughs> so no. Chimichangas are from uh, Applebee's. Yes, under the subcategory burrito. Yeah, okay. I, cl- um, I classify burrito as outside of the sandwich, just so we're, we're clear. Yeah, just keeping we're, we're clear. Okay. Oh, taquito. I don't know. I don't know. Sandwich just doesn't feel right for it. Okay, so that's a slow no. I like um, my surrounded by carbs definition here. Yeah. I feel like it really comes into play. It's going to come into play next. Uh, a, a spring roll? So if, if we're calling us if a, we're calling a taquito a sandwich, then a spring roll has to be also. I think. So I'm going to go yes mm, to spring nope. roll. Well, spring roll, spring roll more so than an egg roll, huh? All right. Because an egg roll, you pinch the the dough together to yeah. seal it off, whereas a spring roll, you roll, roll it. it. And depending on how you seal the dough, it's more like a burrito than it is. So neither, uh, none of that matters to me. What matters to me is whether the wrapper can be classified as a bread nope, prior to cooking, rice and paper. it cannot. Right. <laughs> so for me, uh, that's a no. But Ashlyn and Lauren and Laura, sushi. A, no. a, 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 a roll. A maki roll? No. Yeah. Or even a futomaki roll? No. <laughs> I don't know. I, yes, subcategory of burrito. No. No. <laughs> it, um, it has, it is sandwich like. It's, it's like those things no where bread. two groups of, no of animals develop the same traits but are totally different. Convergent <laughs> like evolution. Yeah. Yes, that. Thank you. It is sandwich-like. Analogous, the same analogous forms. But 
rice, sushi rice is not bread. Yeah. It is just distinctly not but, bread. It's but Ashlyn's definition does not require bread. But we didn't talk, we didn't say carbs. Because again, did say carbs. Ashlyn did say carbs. Okay, I spe- well. I specified surrounded yep. by carbs. Well, then you've got to rethink all your pasta things. <laughs> you've got to Surra- rethink them. You are totally off. Surrounded by carbs is my favorite 90s shoegazing <laughs> but, band. But they're different than dumplings. So that's why all the pastas get a, get a pass as dumplings. But cannelloni's not, not a dumpling. Oh, cannelloni, that's thing? like tube-shaped well, pasta he, with filling. They, we weren't asked about that. We were asked about enchiladas. I'm just saying. <laughs> so c- cannelloni, Ashlyn, uh, that would be a sandwich? Uh, no, it's still a casserole because you put okay, sauce and shit sure. on it. Cannoli. No. Yep. <laughs> I've painted myself in here. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go with no again because it is, it's not the same, it, it's not the that type of thing. And because I like that definition of the dough needs, like the dough, oh no, the dough does get cooked. Yep. It gets filled after. It does not, yep. conti- it does not hold its structural integrity for even past like one bite. Okay. But neither does a taco, and I'd say a taco is a sandwich. Like a hard shell taco? I don't. No? No. How is that that different than a wrap sandwich? I said I was waffling on wraps. (laughs) Yeah, but how is it different than a pita? I didn't say, like I said, pitas doesn't matter. You said a pita with stuff inside of it is a sandwich, a cozy in their sandwich home. (laughs) (laughs) I remember this phrase. Oh God! People are gonna hate us so much. Apparently, I told them they could leave. (laughs) Apparently, I'm a sandwich prescriptivist. (laughs) What was the question again? What are we talking about? Cannoli. Cannoli. Yeah, I I have to say that a cannoli is a sandwich. (laughs) No, no, no. It's not. I, I dessert. I'm. Yeah, I have to say too. Once you get in the realm of desserts, it is a sufficiently different category of food that again while it may have sandwich like properties it is a different thing what about dessert pizza or a pizza's not a sandwich well no but is it still a pizza if it's sweet i'd say yeah i've seen some weird pizzas in my life so a marshmallow and chocolate sandwich laura what so is that a sandwich is there bread yes is it graham crackers Maybe. <laughs> s'mores are definitely so, sandwiches. Obviously a flatbread. No, <laughs> s'mores would be more like a sandwich cookie. Because graham crackers are more cookie than they are cracker. <laughs> it's more cookie now than man. <laughs> um, so I thought you were going to say a peanut butter and marshmallow sandwich, which is a fluffernutter, which is a sandwich. Wow, so I, I will not definition... say that word. <laughs> yeah. Laura's definition hinges entirely on the presence of sugar in the bread. Because it changes things sufficiently. Okay. Okay. A matzo stick, jalapeno popper, or chicken finger. No! <laughs> no! As I mentioned, just surro- surrounded by batter or crumb coating does not make something a sandwich. Carbs, Ashlyn. Oh, that, no. <laughs> that would make a sole piece of KFC a sandwich. Every time you eat something from your 20-piece bucket, you're eating a sandwich. Yeah, breading is different than... Uh, some sort of wrapper. Okay. So no. What about battering? <laughs> no, still. Okay. You're gonna get battering. <laughs> <laughs> well, because I said no to to um pogos. Yeah, <laughs> corn dogs. Um, so yeah, batter doesn't count. Okay, we're almost done. A deep fried cheesecake. No. Nope. What do we wrap that in? I think it's battered, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Is it it's battered? battered? Usually battered. Because no, because I'm thinking sometimes, like a Mars bar, a deep fried Mars bar. Sometimes will be in like an egg roll wrapper yeah, or really something like that. Wrapper. Also not a sandwich. Yeah. Okay, I'll say not a sandwich. So I think this is the last one that I have. 
A stack of pancakes. No. <laughs> Optionally, with butter and syrup between the layers. No. <laughs> no. Yes. <laughs> I, I doubled down on the butter sandwich thing, so I can't say no to this one. <laughs> I am not internally consistent, and I'm okay with this. <laughs> no, because I, I think that falls... While not baked separately, it falls more into, like, the whole casserole deal than it does into mm, something else. That's right. There's also way more sugar than fits your definition. Exactly. <laughs> Wait, we never even talked about tacos. Yeah. Uh, sorry, I skipped it. Tacos. No. Yes. Yes, obviously. Um, yes. Uh, hard shell or soft shell, does that matter to anybody? No. Change anybody's answer. No. Soft shell taco. Still no. Still it's no. the same thing. It's the same yeah. tortilla. I don't okay. understand how your answers make any sense <laughs> after this one. They're also doubling down, okay? <laughs> we all we all have made you our beds. You said like a bunch of the folded things were sandwiches. So how is a soft shell taco not a sandwich? People contain multitudes, Ashton. <laughs> I will quote uh, oh Emerson here. Ralph Waldo Emerson. A foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. Adored by little statesmen and philosophers and divines. With consistency, a great soul has simply nothing to do. He may as well concern himself with his shadow on the wall. <laughs> I see how it is. Not Ultimately, right. th this is simply a fun classification and debate exercise where there's no clear answer. I do have to say, I think that part of the reason that I am the way that I am and part of why the Jehovah's Witness and what they were trying to teach me during their like two years where they tried to talk me into their religion why it spoke to me was because everything about it was extremely internally consistent the way that no other sort of brand of Christianity I've encountered has been at all consistent they were like just everything uh, that I had a question about. It was very consistent. It was wrong and bad. <laughs> but it was consistent, and I liked that. <laughs> I'm oh. a chaos demon. <laughs> so, luckily, this is a subject where we can all um, enjoy having strong opinions about something that doesn't really matter anyway, and nobody really has a good definition for. Kind of like the scientific definition of species. <laughs> That was super fun. Thank you, Jem. And speaking yes. of thank yous. I would like to, again, take an opportunity to thank our donors, the anonymous ones, uh, the regular ones, and the irregular ones. Special shout out to Matt and Marie for their uh, holiday donation. Very much appreciated. And to everybody who takes the time to listen, you're the reason we do this show. Especially um, for this last half hour. Yeah. <laughs> If you didn't stick through this last half hour, I don't blame you. Uh, and uh, thanks to those who uh, have taken the time to write iTunes reviews. Ashlyn, I think we got a new review recently. Yeah, uh, so this one's from November. Uh, anonymous, which is how it is said, I think, but not how it is spelled. Like anonymous. Yeah. <laughs> uh, writes, best podcast. This is my favorite podcast. I look forward to it every month. Aww. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And thanks to uh, Ian for our music, and uh, probably thanks to Fred Penner for that other music that we've been playing. 
Uh, I did not ask permission, despite the fact that he lives not too far from here, and I was at a party uh, at his house uh, a couple decades ago. <laughs> oh, yeah, that'll, that's the PFS hey, right hey, there. Fred, I was over here a couple decades ago. Can I use one of your songs in this podcast I made? I'm sure it's fine. I, I, I spent hours trying to get my drunk friend to not break your guitars, if, that, if that's any, any help. Please don't sue us, Fred Penner. <laughs> I don't want to be the people who got sued by Fred Penner. <laughs> All right. What are we talking about next month, Ashlyn? Uh, so uh, we are actually going to take a listener suggestion that came in just last night. Thanks, Chris. And we are going to watch and talk about the movie Game Changers, which is on Netflix, I believe, mm-hmm. and has been making the rounds in all kinds of food and nutrition circles. Exciting times. Should be a good one. Episode, if not movie. I don't know. What, what is this thing? Is this a movie? Is this a it's show? It's a documentary. I, yeah, yeah I, th- I thought suddenly I was unsure. Thanks for joining me, everyone, tonight. Thanks for making Sandwich Cast happen. <laughs> I am thoroughly happy with how it turned out. And thank you, listeners, for sticking with us. <laughs> and if you didn't, we don't blame you. <laughs> thank you, Laura. Hopefully, hopefully it's out of our system now. <laughs> no. 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 We, we'll... we sweated it out like a fever. <laughs> we'll be on to Soupcast next. <laughs> Cereal is definitely a soup. It is not a soup. <laughs> Good night, everyone. Good night. Good night. <laughs> Life, the Universe, and Everything Else is produced by Jem Newman and Ashlyn Noble, with mix and tech production by Jem Newman. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is with a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, or by sharing an episode with a friend. Original music is produced by Ian James, and this episode was edited by Jem Newman. say at the beginning of the show that this is a podcast about the intersection of science and society and i think that this is the epitome of that mission in an episode <laughs> I think I think this is yeah. perfect this is our most important episode <laughs> no not most important just most on mission yeah. internally consistent. <laughs> i agree with that also i'd like to point out that in parts of michigan or is it massachusetts It's one of those two places. There is a delicacy called the chow mein sandwich, (laughs) which is white bread, chow mein noodles, brown gravy, and like your, it's like celery, onions, and bean sprouts. And you eat it with a knife and fork. What about, what about those burgers where the patties are just rice cakes? Like the compressed rice. What? Yeah, it's totally a thing. Good night. Life. Don't talk to me about life. Okay. Voices, voices. Okay, uh, I'm just, this is uh, what I sound like. Laura, are you coming? Nope. I said I was going to do a sound check and she left. Yep. We know she's never quiet. <laughs> like it's, yeah. it's good. That's you get fair. mad at her during the sound check, so she's just going <laughs> to leave now. What's that? <laughs> I said I, I needed to do a sound check and you immediately left. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> F*** this shit. <laughs> <laughs> Fix it in post. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, we'll do it live. Exactly. <laughs> so how do those levels look, Jim? <laughs> We've had all of the ingredients for the double down for, for <laughs> hundreds of years, and still no one attempted that monstrosity. I love me a crunch box. <laughs>
Whenever we drive past KFC, Huxley points to it and says, that's the meat restaurant. (laughs) Well, because there's nothing you can do. Yeah, they ask about it. We've never been because like, why would we go? Didn't didn't they bring something at some point? They had something. In the States, they introduced a a Beyond Meat chicken chicken nugget thing. Yeah. And it was selling really well, I think. And so I was going to buy it. But of course, I'm not here yet. So when it comes. We were at Superstore yesterday. And we saw the packages of Beyond Meat Crumbles in with everything else. It's pretty good, honestly, yeah. in my in my opinion. I had part of Lauren's burger once. Yeah. Because we would drive down to the States to get some occasionally, but that's an expensive burger. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but for a while, the only place you could get it in Canada was at A&W. We started having some more Beyond Meat stuff, and I think uh, Old Spaghetti Factory has Beyond Meat meatballs now. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we had them, we're like, ugh, this spaghetti tastes like A&W, <laughs> just because like, I've associated that flavor oh, in my no. mind now. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just stop talking. Sorry, oh, sorry. What are you... Is that better? Yes, kind of? much. Okay. Sorry. That is your punishment. It's okay. It doesn't bother me as much as... Hmm. You shouldn't give me that information to work with. <laughs> okay. I, I find it hard to believe you could possibly make more of those noises, but... <laughs> Whoa! We are friends! <laughs> Remember my amazing slurpy slurp? <laughs> I, I, I don't hold it against you. It's just... We all have our quirks. Well, Lauren holds it against me, apparently. <laughs> Great. Lauren just has a higher dose exposure, that's all. That's true. I made the mistake of telling Laura about some of the vocal tics that I was removing from her segments. Yep. Worked out well for you, didn't it there, buddy? <laughs> I bet I could guess a couple. <laughs> We're friends, Ashlyn. <laughs> yeah, Laura stood up for me. I gotta shut up. That was a fake standing up for me, asshole. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently Sandwich Cast is gonna be the end of this podcast. <laughs> no, we already have next month's topic picked out. Go oh, with a whimper. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, back to my very serious science segment. I just wanted it to be organic. I, okay. Like, I have many pet peeves, but... <laughs> Steiner would be proud. <laughs> and it's apparently just like the cheapest grocery store garbage, but it's what you need to make that cake taste like childhood. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. So that's what this whole book is about. It's just like those beautiful nostalgic memories. <laughs> However you need to get them. That's funny. Did they have a recipe for making the cake taste like the time that my dad used a blowtorch to, to light my candles and they all melted directly into the uh, top of the cake? We don't have recipes for child abuse, Jim. <laughs> oh, it's not going to be as nostalgic for me then. I think that was the same birthday that I got hit by a car. Oh, God. Well, I can't Jim, top that let one. let Ashlyn tell her story. <laughs> so I have a better story that... I totally let my brother take the fall for it at the time. It was my grandmother's 80th birthday, and my mother had planned her a party to take place in the rec room of her building. And this was after a long period of my grandmother not talking to our family. And my mom brought sparklers to put in the cake, which was already a bad idea. But then she handed, and I mean, I wasn't young i was like 23 at the time <laughs> she hand, so i just want to make this clear and my brother is a year younger than i and she made us both come to this party to help her she handed us 10 or 12 sparklers and said put these on the cake like light them and put them on the cake she specified light them 
Uh, and so Tyler was just like, well, I don't know what to do. And so he held them all in a bundle. And I was like, I guess I'll just light them like this. And <laughs> oh we melted the table. There was slag in the cake. These old ladies were picking pieces of metal out of their cake because it just like went into it like a hot knife through butter. Uh, yeah, we had to like reimburse the building for the damage to their table. <laughs> Tyler got all of the flack for it, and I never mentioned, like, I was actually the one who lit them, but okay. <laughs> it's, it's, good a, it's a good, I don't know, Tyler, but good job not ratting out your sister. <laughs> well, he's a cop now. Yeah. <laughs> Unless he listens to this podcast. I was, about, I was about to say, that's a good brother, but then I remembered he was a cop, so. <laughs> he certainly does not listen to this podcast. <laughs> oh, so many bleeps in this section. <laughs> Yeah, I, th- I think I've just given up on those. <laughs> Enjoy your E-rating. <laughs> People are like, oh, this should be a family friend. Oh, no. <laughs> Why is the sandwich cast the only one with an E-rating? <laughs> Insert Fred Penner. <laughs>